This is the current federal tax developments for the week of February the 20th, 2023. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and this we're going to look at some of the things that happen in the current week in federal taxes. The first thing we're going to look at here is that the IRS has announced a program that will accept the upload of documents in response to some but not all notices received by taxpayers. We'll talk about this is the beginning of their program, what they're looking to do going forward. Then we're going to talk about a couple of news stories during the week that came up, one of which was a discussion published in an article in Tax Notes this week. We've had a couple of other articles I'll mention that have also pushed this out in other locations, but there is a significant drafting glitch in the SECURE Act uh, that essentially in Section 603 that effectively eliminates catch-up contributions to retirement plans or to 401k plans next year. And because of that, we need a fix, and there's some discussion about how such a fix can come about. We'll talk about the nature of the glitch and also what fixed possibilities are there and how it appears things might move forward. Finally, we're going to discuss a comment that came out this week at the American Bar Association's tax section meeting, where an IRS chief counsel's office employee uh, basically broke the news that the chief counsel's office is not looking to just routinely challenge Section 199 Cap A deductions for the Qualified Business Income Deduction for cannabis businesses. Rather, they did indicate there may be a problem with W-2 wages, or at least the limit there may kick into and cause a lot of problems, but they aren't going to say that 199 Cap A per se is covered by the 280 Cap E bar on allowing business deductions other than cost of sales. And so we'll talk about kind of, at least, let's put it this way, they're not raising that position. Certainly we've seen nothing litigated directly on it. So we'll talk a little bit about what that means and, uh, you know, how we, uh, how we go forward. So let's start out with an announcement that came out late in the week. And it came out both in the case of a news release, which was news release in IR, IRS news release, IR 2023-29, that came out on the 16th of February, entitled Taxpayers Can Now Upload More Documents to IRS. New online option for nine notices can help resolve issues faster. And a tax and a fact sheet, IRS fact sheet FS 202305, uh, dated February of 2023, entitled The IRS Expand Secure Correspondence for Taxpayers. Now, the point of this is, of course, provide a limited option to allow taxpayers to upload certain notices to the IRS, upload information in response to specific, to specific notices received from the IRS. So the, this is like the first baby step, shall we say, in terms of allowing people to submit things directly to the IRS electronically via secure transfer method, as opposed to having to mail things in or send them via the fax machines, which seems like sometimes aren't answering the phone, among other things. So again, we'll have to see how this works, how the program rolls out, but it will open up some issues. Now, the fact sheet describes most of the details of the program. And you'll notice it starts and tells you that, you know, the basic starting at the standard kind of general purpose fluff start, that they're applying technology to provide a more efficient way for taxpayers to, or their tax professionals to submit requested documents online instead of mailing it to the IRS. Um, again, they have details here. It's called the IRS Document Upload Pool and allows digital correspondence with the taxpayer by providing a URL, right? That's that thing you see in the line, the address line of your browser, right? HTTP colon slash slash, all that stuff, 
Provide one of those and limited time unique access code to specific taxpayer so you can upload their documents to the IRS. And, you know, it, access originates with the IRS and is not available for documents that require physical signatures or certain other documents. Now, as a practical matter, we all kind of know, most of us do, who have any sort of online portal structure, that realistically, this really wasn't a tough problem to solve for the IRS, technically to make this secure, you know, because the taxpayer is going to initiate. Now, the fact that somebody might fraudulently claim to be the IRS, which is the obvious problem they're worried about, yeah, that's a bigger problem. But as long as the IRS handles this correctly and initiates it right, it's not that difficult to get things securely to a specific third party. We don't need accounts or anything like that to make it happen. So that part is solvable. As I said, what's not necessarily easily solvable is dealing with fraudsters who are likely to catch on to this and claim to now allow people to upload. So be very careful. I would expect fraudsters to try and you know take advantage of this. So make sure you understand which notices are involved and specifically how the program will work. So you aren't the one duped into sending your client's data off to a, shall we say, less than honorable person rather than the IRS when you think you're responding to an IRS notice. Now, nine notices are added to the project currently, and you'll notice that CP2000 is not on the list, which I'll disappoint a few. Uh, but they said, effectively, this affects about a half million, half million taxpayers each year. And if you receive one of these notices, the notice will have a link and access code. This is important. You need to get one of these notices. It needs to have a link and an access code. And type in the URL. You know, I would not be clicking any link somewhere in an email. Go ahead, type it in. And make sure it appears to be going someplace that makes sense. You know, irs.gov would be a really good base. I hope they're using that as their start address to make this link. Now, the ones involved are the CP04 relating to combat zone status, the CP05A information request related to a refund, the CP06 and CP06AA related to premium tax credit, the CP08 related to child tax credit, CP09 related to the earned income tax credit, again, CP75 and 75A and 75D, which also all relate to earned income tax credit, and the D variant also relates to certain other credit. Now, the IRS now has identified 53 other notices that they're considering adding this to. You know, they're saying they could work. So they're going to look at what which of those could they expand. So we would expect these to expand at some point in the future. We'd have this expanded up and ready to go. Okay, now how the process will work. Language on the notice will tell, will tell the taxpayer to send us your documents using the documentation upload tool within 30 days of this notice. It should include a link and a unique access code. Again, you should open the link in any browser, user access code, and the first and last name or social security number, a taxpayer identification number, or employer identification. It says employee, but I think they mean employer here, ID number. Uh, you can upload scans, photos, or digital copies of documents up to 15 megabytes per file, and up to 40 files can go up to this service. And you'll receive a confirmation. The IRS receive their documents, and the IRS employee assigned the case can manage those transmitted documents. Now, as I said, the tough part here is making sure that the link you have is really the IRS link. So you want to make sure the notice is legit. You know, you want to try to verify that, obviously. To be honest, that kind of scamming worked before with paper as well. You could just send a scam IRS notice and ask people to send in paper, and obviously that could go off the rails. 
But just be aware of this and be aware though in this case of how they're going to do it. My guess is the scammers will try to use email as a way to automate this and try to get people to respond. Nothing in the fact sheet indicates Harris is going to send an email notice to anybody asking them to use this system. So ju just be aware of how it works. It's going to be very important to understand how the legitimate system works to make sure that you or your clients aren't duped by somebody who is, shall we say, has less than honorable intentions regarding how they're going to handle this. Now, like they said, assuming you're actually sending it to the IRS, again, that's that's the Achilles heel of this, and that's where the scammers will show up. Just fair warning. That, that's clear where they're likely to be scammers. They're going to send emails, and I remind you, nothing here says an email's coming. Now, if the IRS goes that route, I'm probably going to complain loudly about that's a security problem because telling people to click a link in an email is very convenient and very easy to fake and very easy to scam. I've said before, and I continue to say, you have to understand there is generally a major league trade-off between something being convenient and something being secure. And being able to click a link in an email is super convenient. And I know I'm going to hear CPAs whining about, why in the IRS just email this stuff out and send us, send us a click link? You know, why are they making it so difficult? Yeah. Look, guys, secure or convenient, you have your choice. My guess in tax, I'm going to strongly prefer secure over convenient every single time. I hate to tell you how bad things go if you're duped into sending something via an email link because you're not paying attention. That's going to be a bad day for you and your client. Probably a really bad day for you if you're the one that initiated the transfer. Uh, for IRS employees, as I said, so it provides, as I said, benefits there. It reduces paper correspondence, decreased processing time, things go into the system. Yeah, there are huge advantages to using this. No, no question, that's a big advantage. Now, how the tool works. This is what's important. The IRS will send you a notice with a link and a unique access code. You must provide the link. You must input the 10-digit alphanumeric code and provide their first and last names and one of their social security number, their individual taxpayer identification number, or their employee identification number. So this is employee here. I'm still kind of interested in why they're saying that. Now, what you can upload is scans, photos, digital copies in JPEG, PNG, or PDF format Max size is 15 megabytes per file. You can upload up to 40 of these uh, documents with the latter, with the PDFs limited to 120 pages each. So you could send 40 pages, and obviously the way you do it, JPEGs, you know, if you're just sending JPEGs, there tend to be one image. There, as I recall, there are multiple image options, but yeah, that, that's not often found. So definitely you're going to probably want to package this stuff up as PDFs. Obviously with 40 PDFs, each of which could have 120 pages. Yeah, likely not sending more than that to the IRS, I'm hoping. Uh, otherwise, may not be worth the bother to get the scanner out and going. Remember to the 15 megabyte limit per file, you have to kind of glance and you may need to use Adobe's condense option uh, to make sure your files aren't bloated with various things, depending on what scanning software you're using, etc. Uh, the documents are available to IRS employees to sign the case, remain available indefinitely until the employee retrieves them, at which time they're archived for 180 days, then deleted from the system. So it tells you how the system's going to work, what's there. This is important that you understand. Okay. And as we say, the IRS in the future plans to move this on to other, other programs. So th this won't be the only one. The goal for IRS who had direct contact with taxpayers to be able to offer secure digital communications as an option whenever possible. So we need to get used to this system. They're obviously starting with just a few notices, 
uh, probably so people can get used to how the system works. Again, the big problem it would be fraudulent notices coming out. Again, that's not really new with Eve with electronic. Fraudulent notices that asked you to fax to a number or send something to some P.O. box or whatever other structure they use where these people then quickly disappear before anybody shows up, realizes what happened. Uh, that, that was obviously pretty easy to do before. Nothing would stop it now from happening. You know, this is just another way. So obviously be aware of the fact of how these work so you can tell clients whether they have a legitimate option to work with here or whether they have a problem in that area. Okay, now let's talk about a little issue that I haven't brought up yet, but it's becoming bigger because Congress doesn't appear to be moving very quickly to do anything. And this was discussed this week by an, by an article, an article authored by Caitlin Mullaney in Tax Notes Today on February 16th entitled Response to Secure 2.0 Catch-Up Contribution Error in Limbo. And if you're not aware, right, there was a drafting error in Section 603 of the Secure 2.0 Act that was meant to require the idea behind this, and when we discussed it in update courses I work with, the idea behind this was to simply require catch-up contributions beginning next year into a 401k plan or certain other employer retirement plans to have to be made to designated Roth accounts. Now, as I discussed when I did updates, basically that would require plans next year to decide if they're going to offer catch-up contributions. I'll rephrase that. If the law worked as they wanted it to work or if you were going to have, you know, if you're going to allow catch-up, you're going to have to put in the designated Roth provision in your plan, even though most plans don't currently have that because they don't want the administrative burden. They don't want the problem of having to allow all employees to set up Roth accounts and then having to track those separately. Well, now either you won't get catch-up contributions for your older employees, and maybe this is going to be highly compensated older employees who are going to want the catch-ups, or, you know, you're going to have to you know, just go ahead and bite the bullet and go the Roth angle. Well, it turns out maybe you don't have to go any angle because Congress made a little glitch when they decided to do this. What they did was accidentally, as they were rewording it, and it was noticed, you know, in essence, the American Retirement Association noticed the problem. They effectively deleted a key clause that they were just trying to revise. They deleted it accidentally which essentially eliminated any ability to make any catch-up contribution to a 401k plan, period, of any sort. So this was noticed by the American Retirement Association in late January. And, you know, the word has begun to go around somewhat. Certainly people are there. Now, the problem is, you know, like it or not, its question is, since the law is written this way, do we have to get Congress to pass technical correction and I want to remind you that they just, with Secure 2.0, finally passed the technical corrections for the Secure Act from 2019. And remember, it took the CARES Act to get the corrections in for the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act for things like the, you know, basically, we had the qualified improvement property glitch. So, yeah, Congress passing a fix, that could be a problem, especially because this would be must-pass legislation which immediately attracts a whole bunch of people throwing things onto it that they figure have no chance of passing whatsoever. But maybe if I can attach it to a must-pass piece of legislation, you know, somebody will swallow hard and just let it go through. And since you have each House of Congress in control of a different party, well, you can understand how this could go awry with everybody's 
thing the other the other basically the other house won't accept the chamber won't accept so we're a little concerned about whether congress could fix this thing or whether they're just going to be the standard um, shall we say uh, operate in a standard dysfunctional format where everybody's trying to get you know get a deal out of it or could the irs issue administrative guidance to fix this now obviously there are a lot of people trying to figure out how the irs could fix this on their own without needing Congress to do anything. Um, well, you know, we'll talk about it. Now, drafting errors are not that unusual in big tax bills. Like I said, think about the qualified improvement property glitch in the, that created 39-year life, qualified improvement property in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, when clearly they meant to do 15-year life and how it took us a couple of years to get that fixed. Right, we've seen these major glitches in bills. I mean, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act had a ton of them. Uh, you know, it, it was kind of, I put it this way, the technical corrections bill that was proposed uh, by the uh, outgoing chair of Ways and Means, uh, Kevin Brady, back when the Democrats took control back in 20, you know, back basically, you know, in 2018, right, when they took control of the House. Uh, it was basically as long as the TCJA which is kind of bad when your technical corrections has as many pages as your original act. Um, it was kind of a problem. So, yes, kind of bills like this, pretty much known, there are going to be major problems. In fact, it's kind of interesting. This appears to be the only really big problem we found, but, oh, yeah, they, they did a big one in, in that particular case. Um, one still possible solution mentioned in the tax notice article would be to have Treasury-issued guidance. Uh, you know, they would issue guidance in anticipation of a legislative fix. Now, they're pointing out they did this back a number of years ago involving some insurance payouts in notice 2007-99. And in that notice, they basically came out and in anticipation of congressional action, they went ahead and didn't enforce the law as law was written, but enforce it in the way that Congress intended. There is a problem with that, though, because we discussed that. We talked about the employee retention credit, you know, basically way back in 2021, uh, we, we discussed the fact that, you know, if whatever Congress writes in the law is what you have to follow. Uh, if Congress doesn't matter whether Congress intended it or not. So, you know, we have these long discussions people like to get into saying, oh, well, that's contrary to congressional intent. It really doesn't matter. If the law itself clearly says A, it doesn't matter that Congress intended B. Only if it's ambiguous about whether Congress about where the law says you have to do A, B, or C, does the fact that we might be able to get some evidence that Congress intended B to allow us to move forward on that basis alone. So as I say, you have to be a little bit aware of how that works and be aware of what's there. And a real problem we have, while Treasury has done those fixes before, generally they do them only after they receive a letter from the chairs of the tax writing committees and also signed at the same time by the ranking members of each committee. And at this point in time, I don't know we're going to get that letter out. You know, we have to get the, the four, you know, the new chair of Ways and Means to sign along with the old chair of Ways and Means and then get the two who have been in the Senate all along to also sign off, all of which agreeing that they're going to pass a bill that says this and then have some confidence that leadership in both chambers can actually deliver that bill. In, in its form without having somebody step in front and kill it or attach something to it that will kill the bill in the other chamber. So I think it would, I think it'd be very difficult for the IRS to argue at this point, you know, I don't know that the service is going to be comfortable 
unless they're really, really sure Congress is going to pass this fix. And considering Congress has until the end of this year to pass the fix, not sure the IRS is going to want to step into this. We're going to be Congress, fix it, or, or else. But be aware, the problem is, of course, we have to start doing something early next year. You know, for people, when somebody finally decides to start trying to make a catch-up contribution, the plans will need to be operated as if they were properly amended under the law. And right now, properly amended under the law would be to eliminate catch-ups. So, yeah, we're going to have to see what they do and how it goes. Now, if you download the materials that I have on the website uh, for this week, which is mainly the slides, but I do have links to two articles, one by one on Bloomberg Tax Site, that discusses this in general by Austin Ramsey, and one on the website of the National Association of Plan Advisors that has a bit more technical description of why this problem exists, which says, which is entitled by John by John Sullivan, uh, which is entitled, you know, Major Secure 2.0 Error Puts Catch-Ups in Jeopardy, ARA's Graph. It's like, you know, and this, this will talk about what was discovered, why it's there, and the issue with Section 203. So you might want to go look at those for more details as it is, just keep your eye on this one because we have a congressional fix we need. If we get a congressional fix bill, which is being discussed, but we don't know it's going to go in, you know, it's possible that if we get something to address 174, the child tax credit, bonus depreciation, and maybe, you know, the computation of adjusted taxable income for 163J, I think if we get such a bill, I think it's very likely this fix will be in it. But the question is, it's far from certain we're going to get any vehicle to attach this to. So just keep your eye on it for coming forward. Next up, now we have another interesting story that came up this week. This is from the American Bar Association Spring Tax Conference. And we usually have a few things come out of there because the IRS sends people up there who are in the higher levels of the IRS and we're able to make statements that then you can not necessarily hold the IRS always to, but they're really good to understand the likely direction the service will be going. And this article was in Tax Notes Today Federal again on February the 14th, Valentine's Day article. And it says, ABA section of taxation meeting, IRS won't challenge pass-through deductions for cannabis operators. Right, so we're going to talk, in this case, this whole thing is, the question arose, if you are, let's say, a marijuana dispensary or a marijuana producer, a legal one under, the league, under state law. Federally, of course, these are problematical. But the feds aren't really enforcing that law and haven't been for quite a while. But nevertheless, you know, under those laws, we had whether you could get a deduction under 199 Cap A for the qualified business income deduction for your dispensary or for your marijuana production facility. And a key question was, does Section 280 Cap E end up barring this deduction? And if you don't remember, 280 Cap E bars most deductions and credits for business expenses of anyone trafficking in controlled substances and marijuana is automatically included in that controlled substance list by the statute. So the question became, does 199 Cap A, the nature of that odd deduction, uh, qualify for what is barred under Section 280 Cap E? Now, it's noted that the IRS had conceded in a case, they just chose not, not to challenge the question, as to whether or not a cannabis dispensary could get the old Section 199 deduction. Remember the qualified business deduction, the qualified production activity deduction? So if, let's say, a producer, a marijuana producer, they didn't challenge that. There were, you know, it was a case dealing with other issues, but that was one they specifically didn't challenge that deduction 
for the marijuana producer. Question is, is 199 Cap A, its kind of successor, is it, would it be similarly treated by the IRS? Now, the actual code section 280E says, no deduction or credit shall be allowed for any amount paid or incurred during the tax year and carrying out any trader business if such trader business right consists of trafficking and controlled substances, which is prohibited by federal law or by the law of any state in which such trader business is conducted. Now, the key issue there is, as is shown on the screen, the issue of paid or incurred. And the question is, 199 Cap A, and the discussion that many people have argued is, the 199 Cap A amount is neither paid nor incurred. Right? Well, it's certainly not paid. We never write a check for it. Now, is it incurred? Well, incurred traditionally in the Internal Revenue Code has been taken to mean an accrual basis amount that eventually would result in a payment, you know, accounts payable. Those are things that are incurred, and if your accrual base is currently deductible, but, you know, we're going to pay them at some point. That, that's the concept of it, being accrued or incurred, paid or incurred. So we're going to say 199 Cap A doesn't look like it's either paid or incurred. As such, it wouldn't be covered by 280 Cap E. Again, by the plain language of the code, it, it's got to be either paid or incurred, and if it's neither, then we're fine. And that, remember, this is just a 20% deduction added to your return for qualified business income. You know, you take 20% of QBI. So, question becomes, does this work in this case? Now, in this case, at the convention, at the conference, Luke Ortner of the IRS Office of Chief Counsel, the Small Business Self-Employed Division, confirmed that the IRS is not going to automatically challenge this. So, they are not taking the position that 280 cap E just eliminates the 199 cap A deduction from a dispensary automatically or from a producer automatically. The fact you're a trafficking business does not mean you can't get 199 cap A or at least the service for now is not asserting it. Now, one key thing you got to understand about this is this statement's not binding on the service. They could change their mind next week. So always keep that in mind. But it is useful guidance because obviously, uh, you know, Mr. Ortner went out there to a conference they knew was going to get publicity. I can't imagine he was going to make this statement in a, in a, you know, in a session like this that he was going to make this statement unless he was cleared to make it, unless basically, yeah, you're cleared, it's okay, there's no problem making this statement in this context. So presumably, th this is known and the service wanted to get it out. One thing, though, they talked about in the article, which is actually going to be a key issue, is remember, the W-2 wage limit may very well be a problem. And only deductible wages count in computing that limit. That's under Regulation 1.199A-2B4, which provides that W-2 wages must be used in computing QBI to be part of the limitation calculation. Well, the wages don't affect QBI if they're qualified business income, net QBI, unless they're actually allowed a deduction. Otherwise, they don't have any impact on computing QBI. So the issue becomes, remember, those wages may very well be blocked depending upon the type of wages they are. And so I would say at least some of the wages are going to be blocked, if not all of them. Now, again, if your taxpayer's taxable income is below the threshold amount, this isn't a problem. But if their income is above the threshold amount plus the phase out, at that point, we, we got a big problem with these wages. Now, because of that, they note in the article that this is likely going to be a far more valuable one-nine cap deduction for producers rather than retailers. 
I mean, retailers can do it a lot of, you know, if they're, if they want to claim it again, remember, this isn't going to help a C Corp uh, cannabis business because they don't get 199 cap A. So it's going to help those conducted as pass-throughs. If they are conducting as a pass-through, 199 cap A can be on the table. Uh, and a lot's going to depend upon whether or not the individuals, let's say if it's a producer, because cost of sales are allowed as a deduction, 280 cap E does not block cost of sales. Since cost of sales are allowable deduction, then the wages that get capitalized into inventory will be fine. They'll, they'll actually get you uh, over toward this computation of QBI. You know, the amount we can take, one half of those wages, or up to one half of those wages. Uh, however, if you are a, you know, if you're basically, if you're a dispensary, then things get a lot more interesting because your wages are generally not going to get into inventory. They're not going to get in cost of sales. It's going to be very, very, very few wages, if any, that end up in cost of sales. And because of that, there's going to be no W-2 wages, which could basically mean that you're going to get no effective deduction related for these items because you don't have anything you can depreciate. There's no depreciable assets that could give you the UBA, which isn't really going to help you much anyway, given the low percentage there that was built for real estate. And secondly, you just don't have any wages. So if you're above the phase-out range, you're above the threshold amount, above the phase-out range, then we're just kind of stuck with a problem. And that, that could get much more interesting. Well, this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of February the 20th, 2023. Uh, you know, you can always ask me questions. Ed Zollers at CurrentFedTaxDevelopments.com. Send me there. We'll try to get them answered and get something back to you. Also, uh, you know, you can watch. I do follow the postings on the uh, websites uh, that are run by the New Jersey Society, Arizona Society of CPAs, uh, Illinois, uh, Minnesota, Washington, and Idaho. So if you post questions there. Otherwise, it's again another week of tax season. And by the way, we're past the 15th. So the brokers should be getting those 1099s out now. And I don't know about you, but that usually means for me that actual returns start coming in much faster from here on out in tax season. So the time is going. Take care. Don't work too hard. And we'll see you back here next week for more current federal tax developments.